In a most unsettling dice gambling game that is to determine the fate of his two players, a man loses his brothers, himself, his wife, and his kingdom to the servitude of the monster incarnate, thus meeting the threshold of an ominous age where the good and the just fight the battle against the evil and unjust. Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. The Mahabharata is one of the two major Sanskrit epics of ancient India, and is often compared by Western scholars as important to world civilization as that of the Bible, the Quran, the works of Homer, Greek drama, or even the works of William Shakespeare. With me today are Dr. Nikhil Govind and Dr. Brian Black. Dr. Govind has published in the areas of India aesthetic and political modernism. He is the author of Inlays of Subjectivity, Affect and Action in Modern Indian Literature, and Between Love and Freedom, the Revolutionary in the Hindi Novel. Dr. Brian Black is a lecturer in the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Religion at Lancaster University. His research interests include Indian religion and philosophy, comparative philosophy, the use of dialogue in Indian religious and philosophical texts, and Hindu and Buddhist ethics. He is the author of the book *The Character of the Self in Ancient India: Priests, Kings, and Women in Early Upanishads*. Welcome, Nikhil and Brian. Shall we begin with the context? Could either of you warm us up about its author as well as the time and context when the Mahabharata was composed? So this is a contentious issue, and there are many theories.、Um, but I will just stick to one of the you know theories that are advanced by scholars, and there is some consensus that it was written around、um, 150 years before the Common Era. And、uh, in that 150 years before the turn of the millennium, and it is believed that it's written by a relatively small group of people, and they've、uh, come together, and it was composed in a relatively short period of time. But as I said, there are other theories.、Uh, the authorship is ascribed to a legendary sage called Vyasa. And what is interesting is Vyasa is not just the author, the supposed author of the entire eighty thousand, hundred thousand verses, but is actually quite a central character to it. So it is a sort of it has this meta-textual quality where the author is outside and inside the text, and this is not a you know self-conscious modernism in any way. But you can see how a lot of what appeals to scholars.、Uh, Like us, or like readers like us in the contemporary world, should be that this consciousness of what is gained by a text when the author is inside and outside of the text. But I want to unpack it at a few more layers, if you will allow me, which is that how Indians receive this text typically today is not so much as text, but、uh, nowadays, of course. Uh, perhaps through television, perhaps through、uh, graphic novels, graphic rewritings, and in the more rural parts of India, for example, where I'm currently, you see it very often on you know theat- theatrical like performances in the streets, in the temples. So it is pervasive; one hears it often, and there is a kind of long cultural memory of it. There are fragments of these stories, but everybody knows. What these stories are and what they refer to, so it is very alive, and it is in that sense that people really receive receive the the quote unquote text that is not so much as text but as stories in the air, as just a kind of、uh, common cultural memory. And so this is perhaps the more traditional Indian mode of reception of it.、Uh, 
Uh, I do want to also highlight that the European and the more scholarly way of looking at it, it was a bit different, was very new in the tradition. And uh, this is their post uh, from the 18th century after the British came. And they went around and they had the more, much more modern idea, which is somewhat alien to the Indian imagination of a single text and a single author. So they kept trying to find the real text, the original text, the real author. And um, today, of course, in our, you know, one perhaps in post-structuralist, post-modern times, this is seen as maybe not the most productive enterprise. But for 150 years, uh, that was the dominant enterprise. And even today, it is important. And there are important Indian scholarly uh, attempts. And so the most uh, significant one was there over a 50-year period, people collected manuscripts. They went from temple to temple, house to house, villages, uh, one village after the other, collecting these old manuscripts. And as you can, in India, India, they are on palm leaves. And so these decay. So then it's not like you have the original manuscript in which it was written, but you have it copied from an older manuscript. And so there are lots of errors in the copying of it. And uh, so, of course, it's impossible to reconstruct what the original was. So the colonial enterprise, if you like, which is, of course, impacted Indian imagination too nowadays, is um, this attempt to find amongst all these manuscripts, what is it that is really common? And so the critical edition, as it was, uh, you know, uh, as what we call the critical edition today, is essentially you've taken the most common parts of it, those verses that are common in all parts of India, and you've put them together. So this is, uh, in some ways, a you know, authentic, admirable scholarly enterprise, but it also is a somewhat strange kind of enterprise and is not quite the way a lot of Indians receive it because, you know, even if it's not 2,000 years old, you know, you might have a 500-year-old. And uh, a lot of very favorite stories are not there in this critical edition. And uh, the last thing I want to say is from a contemporary perspective, what is interesting about um, the book is exactly from... Uh, as I said, from uh, questions of realism, questions of modernism, and uh, a lot of the the way in which uh, texts are, are produced in that period. And like I said, the obsession with text is arguably, you could even say, a Protestant idea. Uh, but that sort of, the fact that we can't fix this is the author and this is the text is not a lacunae in any way but it's something that makes the whole enterprise of understanding this cultural world far more enriching. So it not it is not a, a loss or the sense, as people used to say, Indians don't have a sense of history. Rather, one, you could, you could argue it is a very different sense of history. It's a much more stylized, more distanced, more sophisticated sense of history. So uh, this is something that, uh, you know, one, sh- one should explore. Like there are many ideas of, of realism, of history, since the Mahabharata does call itself a history. Right. Well, Brian, you emphasized in your book, in dialogue with the Mahabharata, the often noted subtlety of Dharma, and you intriguingly demonstrated how that subtlety can carry different connotations depending on who he is speaking, as well as circumstances, right? Since understanding Dharma is crucial in understanding what the entire Mahabharata is about, could you please help us understand this concept in detail? And how does that subtlety of Dharma offer storytellers great opportunities for the development of the narrative? That's a great, um, a great question. Dharma is one of these 
terms in Sanskrit that is virtually untranslatable, just because it means so many different things. Um, it maps onto a number of different English words. So, for example, sometimes dharma is translated as uh, justice. Sometimes it's thought of as ethics. Sometimes it's used almost as a substitute for the word religion. Um, so it's it's a very important concept in ancient and medieval Indian traditions. And so the Mahabharata is one of many texts that is very interested in this concept. Um, but probably more than other texts, the Mahabharata's interest in Dharma is one of, uh, of questioning. In, in other words, there are other different types of texts that are more sort of normative, um, more prescriptive of how people should lead an ethical life or how people should how people should lead a religious life. And, and the Mahabharata does contain elements that are like that as well. But on the other hand, what the Mahabharata is really interested in doing is questioning what Dharma is, putting Dharma to the test. And, um, and then through that process, um, claiming to point to or uncover a sort of deeper understanding. Let me just go back to one other aspect of Dharma, though, that's really important to understand, to understand how the Mahabharata questions Dharma, how it examines Dharma. And that is with within the concept of Dharma itself, even though there's a sort of universal dimension of Dharma in the sense that everybody should follow Dharma, everybody should try to live their life dharmically, etc. Within that sort of, say, shared or universal understanding, there's also very much this element that Dharma is always very particular to a given person, depending on their situation, their caste, their gender, their stage of life, um, their particular vocation, etc. And so in that way, one of the things that the Mahabharata often does is it kind of sets up these episodes in which the different dharmas that a, a single person would be expected to follow clash with one another. So, you know, one of these clashes that comes up again and again is, for example, one's commitment to follow uh, Kula Dharma, which refers to family Dharma. Uh, in other words, the Dharma one must follow to, um, to be a good and loyal family member and say their caste dharma, things, duties, and responsibilities that they have because of their particular caste. Whereas these dharmas can sometimes have tension with one another. You know, what if me wanting to save my family means me kind of going against my vocation, um, you know, my upbringing, the, the sort of social role that I have in life more generally? So then part of another part of the question you asked though and one of the things I address in my book is this this notion of 
subtle dharma. In Sanskrit, it's they use the word sukshma to describe dharma, which means subtle or difficult to understand and unfathomable. And one of the interesting things about uh, this notion of subtle dharma is that it's presented as not a type of dharma, but rather a higher understanding of dharma itself, that dharma's nature is subtle and that it can and and one of the things that that subtlety is pointing to is that these surface understandings of dharma are not all, always true so to give an example um you know um according to most sort of conventional understandings of dharma it's not okay to lie telling a lie is a bad thing because telling the truth is often considered the highest dharma. But the Mahabharata presents some occasions where telling the truth can be harmful. Telling the truth can lead to um, unwanted circumstances. It can lead to innocent people dying. And so if you know those sorts of consequences in advance, that might be a case where you don't want to tell the truth. You do want to lie. To lie, And so um, different characters in the Mahabharata will invoke this particular understanding of dharma, subtle dharma, to kind of justify why it's okay to kind of break these normal conventions of dharma and do something that seemingly is immoral, but for sort of a higher purpose. I think one of the really interesting ways in which the Mahabharata explores this notion of Dharma on a narrative level is how a number of the main kind of spokespeople for this higher understanding of Dharma are marginal characters. And so some of the um, the most sort of explicit teachings of subtle dharma are by characters are on the periphery, an unnamed housewife who appears in um, in an embedded story that's not part of the main narrative, um, a hunter, a butcher, you know, people that are performing jobs that are considered to be unclean or impure. And what's interesting about these episodes is that oftentimes it's the most marginal characters then who claim to have this highest understanding of Dharma, this understanding of Dharma that's more subtle. It doesn't mean that they're the only ones who have this, but it does sort of suggest um, that the Mahabharata is um, is sort of challenging um, more normative texts that would say that only, say, people of the priestly caste, Brahmins, or, you know, the most powerful and well-educated of the royal castes, like kings and princes, have a sort of monopoly over the highest knowledge. We do see that at times in the Mahabharata, but it's very interesting how this concept in particular of subtle dharma is often conveyed by these more marginal characters. And I think that offers some really kind of interesting storytelling opportunities. 
Right. Well, Nikhil, even though reading Mahabharata reminds us of reading Homer's Iliad, it simply cannot be categorized into the epic genre according to the Western narrative tradition, right? It is actually a unique combination of didactic, poetic, and even scriptural narrative. I wonder if you could say more about the genre of the Mahabharata. I know you've given much emphasis in your book, The Moral Imagination of the Mahabharata, on questions such as what kind of moral impact does a war narrative have on its readers, and what kind of reading tradition a reader will find himself involved in. One of the uh, points that scholars have brought up and readers have brought up is that it seems to mix a lot of different kinds of moods. So it doesn't have the economy, one might say, that is typical of, let us say, a, a modern novel. It doesn't have that kind of strict causality, you know, which is seen as good uh, Aristotelian values. Uh, rather that, like, maybe closer to a Bollywood movie, there are all kinds of genres. They're intermixed. They don't often necessarily make sense. There are large didactic portions, tens of thousands of verses, which, you know, are quite hard to read, quite boring, frankly, and not so interesting, and just seem to say something very obvious about good and evil. But what is interesting is when that is undermined by the actual narrative events of the story, where, you know, precisely what is didactic and seems to be very clear and black and white is constantly undermined and called into question. So you have the didactic, you have the lyric, you have some sense of a kind of religious authority. And the religious uh, functions in a very interesting way because one of the important characters, the Mahabharata, is uh, a figure called Krishna who uh, is sort of divine even in this text but becomes much more divine historically speaking, if, if one could speak in these terms, only many thousand years later really. Here he's more a warrior. One must remember this is a martial epic beyond everything else. It sees itself as a, about legitimate kingship and the right rule. And one of the elements, the essential elements of right rule is to know when to go to war. So it is not by any means a pacifist text. And it is not as in some interpretations of Christianity about being exclusively of a uh, religion of love and peace at all costs. Rather, you know, the moral acme is often uh, the idea of the just war, the good war. And, you know, the warrior is, is you know, the, uh, he, it's mostly a he at this point, uh, who chooses the correct war, when to go to war, is actually seen as the, the discerning person. And the values of the epic are very much around this idea of the warrior. And so... Uh, it is seen in that sense very much as as history. Uh, and, uh, of course, one must remember that history here is not, you know, contrasted to ideas of myth or lyric or any of these things. History is continuous with it. So the distinction we make in the modern world between history and myth and realism and or the natural and the supernatural, these distinctions make little sense in the world of the Mahabharata. Uh, here we see uh, God is a warrior and very much about a just warrior and ideas of a just war. Uh, at the same time, it concedes that uh, that ethics is subtle, ethics is is not clear, and uh, there are you know one could argue that uh, many of the questions that are asked are not are not answered even by by God, so to speak. So the most one of the most famous subtexts is um, the 
the Gita, which is uh, really the, the one of the chief warriors, says, I do not want to go to war. I do not want all of this. Uh, why should I, you know, what is the use of getting this kingdom if I have to kill my own cousins for it, my own, my, my kin? And the God figure Krishna says, no, but you must go to war. That's the correct, that's the correct ethical thing to do. And we don't have to buy God's arguments. It is. We hope you have enjoyed the episode so far. If you want to hear the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.